Hey guys, welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Ray. We've all heard about bots, fake accounts on social media used to drive traffic or imply popularity. And it can be pretty difficult online figuring out what's real and what's not. This past weekend, a team of New York Times reporters published a great story detailing their dive into this murky online world and how they discovered a black market of fake followers. The customers for those followers, some of your favorite TV stars, actors, pundits, professional athletes, and yes, even some journalists. The Times story revealed not just who was paying for the bots, but also why. For some, they're a way to sway advertising audiences. For others, bots can reshape political debates, defraud businesses, or even ruin reputations. Yet their creation and sale falls into a legal gray zone. To unpack this Twitter bot economy, we're joined today by Mark Hansen, a reporter on the team that produced that time story. He's also a professor of journalism at Columbia University, head of the Brown Institute for Media Innovation, and holder of probably several more titles. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. So you're not on staff at the Times. Uh, I'm interested in how you ended up on this story. Can you take me through its origins? Sure. Uh, I, as you said, one of my many titles, I, I teach at, uh, at Columbia. Um, my doctorate's in statistics, uh, so I teach a lot of the computational classes. And um, my class last spring was... Um, loosely about computational propaganda, the ways in which the networks that um, we rely on to provide us with information, um, the way they function, the way they can be gamed, the way people can uh, earn outsized voices. And so, you know, as, as part of that, we, uh, we started unpacking, well, unpacking Twitter, and we started with simple things like trending, trending topics. That tends to be the way in which you get a sense of what people are talking about, what's out there, and so there's a real push to try to get topics to trend. Um, so how do those algorithms how do how do those algorithms work? Twitter doesn't really say very much. There's a lot of folklore about how you might get something to trend. And so once we moved from trending, we we uh, we thought, well, you know, if part of this is is getting your voice amplified, let's try to do that. So we bought some we bought some uh, followers on Twitter. We Googled. Uh, yeah, how do, how do you do that? You <laughs> Google buy followers on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, the company that we ended up buying from, turns out, uh, which is the one featured in the story, uh, was founded by someone whose career star- started in uh, search engine optimization. So it's not surprising that he would be at the top of the, of the heap. Um, he also effectively runs a number of recommendation sites, the, the sites that recommend who to buy from, all share Google Analytics tags with his own uh, purchasing site. So they're all basically run by the same person. Um, So we ended up in this company. We bought 2,500 followers and had a look. And the next couple weeks, we unpacked what we'd what we'd received, and uh, and uh, and that became the the start of our pitch to the Times. So you and the class went directly to the the Times and said, "Hey, we think we have something here." Especially given how much uh, social amplification by bots had been in the news uh, with the Russia investigation. Um, I think I think our our interest initially was well, I googled purchase followers on Twitter. And the company is a little cagey about what exactly you're buying. So, you know, th- there's a lot of claims about about authenticity, about 
um, about it, like they look real um, or that they are real, right? And so it, it's not quite clear as this language morphs. And even if you go back in the Internet Archive, like, you know, the, the language morphs over time for the, for the company. Um, so we weren't quite sure what we were buying. And when you look at them, they looked great. I mean, to the point where initially I just thought these were real people who were going to retweet us. And I couldn't quite figure out the economy, the economics behind that, right? Because we weren't paying very much. Um, actually, I don't quite remember, but it was like, you know, a, a few pennies to a dime per follower. Um, how could someone possibly <laughs> make any money off of this? So it didn't add up. But they looked great. The there's a background picture um, that kind of you know often it's like a maybe a party scene and you see the person who's also in the biopic and that same person there's like a Facebook link and that goes out to the same person and I thought wow someone if this is a bot someone went like like tried really hard to make a person's life out of this right you can see you can see an example of this in the story right, yeah. that you focus on yeah right right um we we focus on uh we start with a uh, a young woman who was actually a minor uh when her profile was was uh copied and and that's actually what we came to in the end we looked at we printed out a number of of the 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 login names, the Twitter handles, and we noticed that names like Brian weren't spelled with an I, they were spelled with a one. And it was a little subtle at first, but then after you see it, right, even someone as slow as me sort of came to a conclusion that there was something weird here. And if you turn the one to an I, you got the exact same uh, you got the exact same profile, um, except that the the images are maybe shifted by a pixel in uh, to the left and or to the right and up, and and the the colors are shifted a little bit, presumably just so that the stupidest possible image check that you could do would fail. So once we figured that out, we thought, all right. Now we have a group of people, at least 2,500, because that's how many we bought, whose identities have been basically taken. And we didn't know what the, the law was around that, um, but it just basically seemed wrong. And so for us, I mean, your question was about, was it because of all the bots in Russia and the political bots? For us, it was these people, right, whose identities had been taken. And then that was an angle that we hadn't seen before and thought that that might provide a way into a story because a lot of the writing about bots is abstract. Um, There's like maybe even some sense of the sublime, right? There's this huge horde on the horizon waiting to take over and, and... and there probably is, right? I don't want to minimize that the the fear of that, but at the same time, um, this would give a face and a way to explain what a bot is and what it's doing. And then also to kind of question what it means to be buying influence in this way. We spend a lot of time talking about what have people actually purchased, um, and and does it does it really make sense? Right. So that was something I wanted to ask about. Was you in the story that ended up running in the Times focus a lot on the people who buy these bots, who buy by the hundreds of thousands at times followers. What was the goal in calling out some of those people by name? Do you think by doing that it made more of an impact and kind of propelled this story into the stratosphere of readership that it's gotten? I don't know if I can speculate on the last part of that question, but but you know, one but before we before we you know made the pitch to the Times, one of the things we did was to say, all right, we have a group of people who are all following us, um, and each of those followers, each of our newly found followers, follow up between two thousand and twenty five hundred people. So let's just turn this around and see who all of who you know who are they following, 
And almost immediately we found that, um, you know, of our 2,500, 2,400 were following Hillary Rosen, hmm. right? And then another 2,400 were following another person. And, and so the inference at that point was, well, these people must have, something must have happened. Like, I mean, the obvious thing is that they purchased bots too. Um, although, you know, if it's a sufficiently famous person, if I was making a bot, the first thing I would have the bot do is follow some people, you know, who a lot of people follow so that it looks less bot-like, right? right? It has some. But anyway, we did this kind of up and down on the network and started to see other people who were around and, and started wondering what that was all about. And part of, for me, part of the interest was just how easy that computation was. I mean, I don't, I don't want to, to, to minimize the work we did. There, one of the byproducts of this, there was a my friend was telling me that there was a, a thread on Hacker News about, about you know, um, Twitter's supposed to be full of the best engineers in the world, and, you know, this group of journalists was able to get on top of the problem, so why can't they? And I, I took a little bit of offense to that, right, because we are teaching the journalists to be really good computationally, and so it's probably selling the journalists a little short to say that, that you know, that... Um, that gosh, if even journalists can do it, dot dot dot. Yeah. So, so our part of our part of our interest was um, in 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 seeing who the other people were who who at that point we suspected were purchasing bots. How easy that could that could start to un unravel. How quickly you could start to look at the at the network. You mentioned a lot of conversations that went into um, the importance of this, and I, I guess that's part of my question is. Why do you think we should care, we being people who live our lives on the internet and it, to one extent or another? Why should we care that there are people out there doing this? You know, I think in a way Twitter has made this sort of thing important. One of the, one of the beautiful graphics that's in the piece that, um, that the Times put together was just looking at the way in which the, uh, the app's um, presentation of tweets has changed over time. So at first it was just the tweet, and then it was some convenience buttons to retweet or whatever. And then it was next to those buttons the number of times things have happened, and then a live count of those things happening. So you're really ratcheting it up, the, the engagement part of it. And I think all of that motivates people to have big numbers, and things just seem, you know, it's expected to, you know, when you're looking at that display, you expect it to be ticking faster and faster or something like that, right? I think the interfaces that, that we're looking at and the assumptions that go into what those numbers mean, I think this story, uh, you know, will have you asking some questions about that. You know, what 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 does it mean to have this many people retweet? and and you know, is, is it possible to have a degree of um, of, of certainty in what's in what you're looking at? Yeah, that um, was that was what I took away was that it's hard to figure out after reading this and then going on Twitter what's real and what's authentic. Well, here's some things. So you can you can some of these you can spot, right? So so if you took a little bit of time. And I don't, I don't you recommend want, you it want people to take time on Twitter right. instead of just uh... <laughs> right. right. So I, I don't necessarily recommend this as a pastime, but like there are certain situations where the audience for a particular uh, for a particular person's content is fairly specialized. So I'm a state senator, and I would expect that most of my followers would come from my state. As you scroll through, and you can do this in the Twitter interface, you scroll through and you see, you know, let's suppose it was someone from Minnesota. You see. 
you know, lots and lots of people from Minnesota for the Minnesota state senator and lots and lots of Minnesota. And then suddenly the average face of Twitter appears, right? And you get all these other people from all these other places. And you're not quite sure why would this person from Hawaii be following this state senator from Minnesota? Like what, what's the connection? And in fact, you know, as you see the diversity of those people, because the bots kind of come in, they kind of come in sort of fast, especially relative to someone who's earning followers slowly or at a, a more natural pace, uh, you get this, you know, big, big chunk of people who just don't look like the community that, that you would expect would be interested in this particular person's content. And it's really obvious. And then when, if you went any farther into the retweet counts or into the likes or whatever, you'll see that some of these same people who, you know, by rights shouldn't have any interest in these tweets because they're from a different state or whatever, right, saying right on to some kind of, you know, Minnesota, <laughs> Minnesota, um, you know, legislative bill or something like that, um, you know, it starts to question, like, what, what does this actually mean, right? So you, you can start to do a little bit of of this. What at least I, I tried to teach the students is how to do this in a more systematic way to partner with computation as part of your reporting practice so that you can ask questions of these systems in a more, well, basically scaling up your reporting. Right. And I mean, once people start saying computational journalism uh, and the intersection of tech and journalism, as someone who is much more grounded in words, I start getting a little scared. One of the things I appreciated about this story and the way it turned out were the visual elements that really helped guide me through it. It was a really beautiful piece to scroll through, and I feel like that helped me understand what exactly you were talking about. Yeah, I think so. So what I what I'm so impressed with the with the Times team about is that you know we had a number of of internal graphics, those fingerprints that were presented. So you know what the Times graphics team and and you know Rich Harris and Gabe Dance were able to do is like look at how do we take this visual signature where the striping is so clear and and the you know the 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 me- mechanism by which the bots are created and added is so clear how do we take that and turn that into a story that is immediately digestible and what i f- i find so compelling about their work is that um the graphic the graphic itself tells a story but the dynamic the interactivity carries its own narrative that leads you into the graphic in a, in a really balanced, um, accessible way. I think what this story does really well is it says that that the idea of computation and data and looking at a virtual system like a social network or a, a, a social media network, that that, that and traditional reporting, the beautiful story that my students and I had no idea what unpack in this way, um, but just the ways in which the story of the individual in charge of the company, the company itself, its mechanisms, the fact that it had been cloned, like all of that unpacked in ways that none of us, I think, anticipated, or at least on, on the Columbia side. And so, you know, what I think what the story does nicely is then is to say that that computational work and the the traditional like really beautifully done reporting that that those are a kind of both and proposition not and not an or either right i mean it it's 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 or either or it's it's bringing the two um it's bringing them two together and i think i think i think you might start to see more of that because so much of world that we live in is affected by 
computational systems, whether we're willing to admit it or not. And journalists need to know how to tell stories and talk about the the power structures that are implied by those um, systems. And you know, they can't be kind of dry technical academic papers. They have to you know communicate in the way that. Gabe and Rich were able to make these these fingerprints communicate. Yeah, uh, well, it definitely was communicated in a way that was accessible and, and really beautiful. Um, it's a great piece, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes if you haven't already seen it across your Facebook or Twitter feed. But Mark, thanks so much for being here to talk through it with us. Thank you very much. This week's episode of The Kicker is brought to you by the latest issue of CJR's magazine, We're looking at threats to journalism, and it's a challenging, even dangerous time to be a reporter. From lawsuits to burnout, we're facing an unprecedented number of threats at home and abroad. So we've dedicated our entire new issue to those topics. We'll be launching it in Toronto on Monday, February 12th, with an event in partnership with the Committee to Protect Journalists. If you're in the Toronto area or just feel like heading up to visit our neighbors to the north, check out cjr.org for more information and to RSVP. Turning now to the news of the week, I'm joined by two of my favorite CJR colleagues, Alex Neeson and John Alsop. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we're recording this on Wednesday, just hours after President Donald Trump gave his first official State of the Union address. I spent last night tweeting from the CJR account, consuming way too much cable news pregame and postgame analysis. Uh, I'm interested, though, in what you guys thought. So Alex, what were your takeaways from the coverage? So probably my most immediate takeaway um, was the amount of fact-checking that happened from uh, mostly newspapers that was happening during the address compared to the basically the absence of that in all of the cable news roundups that happened afterwards. Um, I spent a lot of time watching CNN last night. And aside from a couple of little quarrels over policies or statistics that Trump mentioned, there was virtually no addressing um, what the reporters at work at some of these other places, the Washington Post, for example, um, had found to be, in some cases, outright uh, inaccuracies or sort of spinning things in a bit of a deceptive way. Um, And that really stuck out to me that folks on cable seemed not to mention any of that to their viewers at all. Yeah, you mentioned the fact checking. There was a ton of that going on from several outlets online. Uh, Enough interest, in fact, that PolitiFact's site crashed about halfway through the speech and was down for a few minutes. Um, But obviously, there was a lot to work with there. I agree that afterwards, there was more focus on tone and style and big picture stuff, uh, not quite as much providing information to viewers as there could have been. John, what do you think? Yeah, I I agree. Um, I mean, I do think that a lot of the analysis that we saw was better than the analysis last year. I think there was a really concerted effort in the buildup, certainly within the kind of media criticism sphere to say, look, this is probably going to be a, quote, presidential speech because he's going to be reading a pre-written address um, off an auto cue. And so we should hold it to a higher standard than just saying um, this was something we didn't expect him to be capable of that's really presidential, well done, Trump. I didn't think there was as much of that this year. Not to say we didn't see any of it, but I think there was a good deal of self-critical, self-awareness on the part of the media. That yeah, that... You, you didn't see Van Jones saying that this was the moment he became president. Right. Well, I mean, you can't have two moments where someone becomes president, <laughs> so maybe Van Jones exhausted that one last year. But, but I do think that the coverage in general has focused too much on style. 
are not on substance. Because even when the conversation is driven by, we shouldn't call this presidential, that's still a question of style. Um, And I felt like, for instance, Mark Fisher in the Washington Post this morning, I mean, his his column was about the style of the speech, I guess, but he said that we didn't get references to, to radical Islamic terrorism or savages. Well, Trump may not have used that kind of vulgar language, but he did rail on those themes for very long parts of the speech. It was a sort of 10 minute period where he essentially seemed to equate, you know, much immigration with MS-13. This was still pretty radical right wing stuff. It may not have been couched in the same visceral language that he uses on Twitter or, you know, during other addresses. But there was a lot of substance there that was pretty consistent with how he has always spoken and behaved. And I felt that some of the analysis afterwards was so obsessed with the style of the delivery that it that it missed out on that. Yeah, I agree that there was too much focus on style. I do think, as you said, that people may have been uh, a little self-aware, self-reflective after last year's love fest following his joint address to Congress. Um, and I noticed that even though the White House spin going into this was that it was going to be a call for unity and lots of bipartisan stuff, that pretty much across the board, people recognized anchors and commentators, that there was not a lot of that. After touting his accomplishments and making a call to unity, Trump went deep into immigration. He said some things on foreign policy that were pretty divisive. Um, Chuck Todd on MSNBC afterwards said, quote, if that was an attempt at unity, he's got a lot of work to do. And even over on Fox News, Chris Wallace referenced the Godfather when he said that on immigration, Trump was making an offer the Democrats couldn't accept. So I think you're right in saying that People were uh, holding him to a little bit higher bar than they have in the past. Yeah, although it's interesting because Alex brought out that distinction between cable news and and maybe print in terms of fact checking. Um, it was kind of the other way around when it came to uh, when it came to what you were just describing. I think cable news analysts did a pretty good job of saying, you know, he may have used the word bipartisan, he may have promised to reach out, but really there was nothing. There was no sort of compromise backing that. But a lot of headlines in print this morning did kind of focus on this new American moment, this call to unity. So it's interesting to see how some of those distinctions tend to align on either side of that medium divide. All right. Turning now from the State of the Union to the State of the L.A. Times, the nation's fourth largest paper has been going through a a month of really chaotic upheaval. It started when its publisher, Ross Levinson, was suspended following reporting by NPR's David Folkenflik that he had been the defendant in two sexual harassment cases in the past. He was placed on leave. There was controversy over the plans that Levinson and then editor-in-chief Louis Dvorkin had for the future of the paper. We published a sort of cutting profile of Dvorkin, um, talking about his past at Forbes and prioritizing clicks over good journalistic content. He was then removed as editor-in-chief and technically promoted to a position at Trunk, the LA Times' parent company. Uh, Jim Kirk was named editor-in-chief. And all of this was taking place against the backdrop of a successful unionization push. Does that about cover it? I think so. I yeah. Think so. <laughs> so why do why does this matter? This is one of the nation's most important and most respected papers, and it it seems to be in just absolute chaos right now. I mean, one of the things that's really striking is how public all of this has been, and I think part of this is because there was just, as you mentioned, a recent and a successful and highly popular union drive there. That sort of certainly adds to the spotlight or the publicity. Um, But all of the shuffling around, it's just happening sort of in real time for everyone across the country um, and, and just kind of paints, you know, this really important newspaper 
as being uh, sort of stuck in chaos, really. Yeah, I think, I mean, clearly the decision to uh, promote, <laughs> if that's what it was, um, Dvorkin may have eased some of the tensions there. Clearly, to put it diplomatically, he wasn't an especially good fit. There were clear fissures in the newsroom. But I think it's really important, and Alex touches on this with the unionization drive that's been going on there. It's important that we, um, when we look at the media and report on the media, don't just think, well, Dvorkin was a key source of tension and he is now gone. So that's the beginning of the road to healing for them. I mean, he, as we have said, has gravitated upward technically in Tronk. Some of the more controversial things he was trying to impose in the uh, LA Times newsroom, like what the HuffPost reported, where there was essentially a shadow company being set up to employ certain new editors. It wasn't quite clear if they'd be editorial or business side. There was a lot of newsroom kind of concern about the melding of those two prerogatives. I mean, these are very well things that he could have responsibility for pioneering in other Tronk newsrooms now that he's at the, the corporate level. So, I mean, it does seem on the face of it, like Jim Kirk is going to be perhaps a safer pair of hands than Dvorkin in LA. But there are problems at Tronk too, and this is probably not the well, it's probably not the last we're going to hear about those. Yeah, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with Tronk, but it's the parent company of not just the LA Times, but also the Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, the Orlando Sentinel. Um, you know, this is one of the biggest players in our industry, and it's one that I, I don't think we're, you know, speaking out of school to say that many journalists have issues with and concerns about the management there. I think for me, another kind of a big thing, going back to the union drive, it sort of demonstrates just how, uh, like why reporters all over the country want unions um, when you have parent companies, in this case, a really sprawling, uh, wealthy parent company, um, just kind of doing things seemingly willy-nilly and making decisions and then reversing them. There was the business editor, uh, Kimi Yoshino, who was uh, suspended and asked to leave with sort of no explanation. And then the entire staff wrote the letter supporting her and asking that she be reinstated immediately. That's something that you can't do when there's no union um, to sort of back you up. Um, uh, people fear for their jobs too much. Um, and so sort of all of this upheaval kind of demonstrates, I think, to folks at the LA Times and to folks elsewhere who might be thinking about whether or not their newsrooms need use, uh, need unions, that perhaps this really is something that everybody needs. Yeah. And then finally, speaking of something else that everybody needs, uh, I would say, to go read, we just published the results of a survey we conducted among journalists uh, about sexual harassment and their experience in newsrooms. We had more than 300 reporters and editors reply and share their stories about those experiences. It's up on our site at cjr.org now. I'd encourage everyone to go read it. Um, this is obviously one of the biggest topics, not just in media, but in American society. And this look is one of the broadest I've seen on our own industry. Alex, you had a big hand in putting this together. So can you tell us what the takeaways were? Yeah, just as a bit of background, um, so this is ongoing coverage from a survey that we began working on in the fall. Um, we sent uh, a couple of different versions of these surveys out um, to journalists, photographers, um, folks who are full-time staffers, to freelancers uh, working in the U.S. and abroad, and asked them to talk to us about their experiences with harassment um, within journalism. At the same time, we sent surveys to uh, management at a selection of newsrooms across the country. 
Um, How'd the, that go? <laughs> the first installment of our results we published in early December. Uh, we asked almost 150 companies to respond uh, uh, to our survey, telling us about their HR practices, about what happens when someone in their newsroom wants to report an instance of sexual harassment or abuse. And none of them responded by the time we published our the first round of our results. We did hear from a handful of folks afterward, but largely it's been radio silence from them. Um, and so this, uh, you know, is the next sort of the next piece of that, what we've uh, just put up today. Basically, we went through and looked at the surveys and, and took and took a look at the parts of the surveys where journalists were writing in and telling us their stories, um, telling us about personal experiences that they've had with harassment, with sort of casual sexism in their newsrooms, at industry events, even with sources. We heard from men, women, queer people, straight people, people from all over the world, really. Probably the biggest and most distressing takeaway in reading through these responses is just how pervasive this is. It happens to everyone, and it happens throughout the lifespan of uh, people's careers. We heard from folks who are new to journalism. We heard from people who are retired from journalism. Uh, We heard from people who have left journalism because of these uh, negative experiences. And I think one of the the ways we describe it is the aching banality. And just it sort of becomes this dull pain that's just always there. It's something that people start to expect. The the statistic that jumps out right from the the lead of the story is that 41 percent of the people that responded to this said that they had experienced harassment either in their newsroom or as freelancers. Only one third of those had reported the harassment to someone in those companies. And I think that speaks to part of the survey about do people know where to turn? Do their companies have policies in place and have they made them clear? Yeah, we heard from a lot of people who said that after these incidents happened that they did reach out to HR, um, that they tried to figure out what they could do to formally file a complaint or make a report. Um, And some people just couldn't figure out what they were supposed to do. Uh, In some instances, the people that they wanted to file the complaints about were the folks who were in positions of management and were supposed to accept these complaints. And and so that makes the the fact that we didn't hear back from any of these companies that we reached out to and asked for this sort of information from, you know, even more distressing because there's a clear need for for people to understand what the policies are and and how they work should they ever need to use them. Yeah, I think there's a clear... And it was a great survey. And I think what it does is it ties into what I've seen, which is like a broader global move, um, maybe not away from, but in addition to these reports against, you know, very powerful, influential men, we're seeing much more action taken or many more stories coming out that are about people you've never heard of, people in the lower levels of media organizations. You have to confront these kind of things every day. And it's not just instances of harassment and abuse, as this survey lays out in such kind of shocking detail. Um, In the UK and in France, for instance, at the moment, there are these moves for equal pay going on. It's a huge scandal at the BBC in the UK at the moment where, you know, well over 100 women at the corporation are taking action against management, where they may even go as far as suing for back pay because they allege they've been Um, underpaid for doing the same types of work. So I think we're seeing, I think it's a very good thing that this original movement that was maybe about a few high profile figures is actually metastasizing into something that is a lot more systemic at kind of lower levels that normally go below the radar. That was sort of one of our goals in this um, was to kind of open, to, to make a space for people who are working in publications maybe that most people haven't heard of or 
um, who have been harassed by people that on a national scale are just not known. There's a measure of a newsworthiness that unfortunately reporters that are working on these stories uh, have to consider when they decide whether they're going to spend the time to investigate something. Um, and so, uh, you know, unfortunately, people's stories don't get told because the names are just not high profile enough. This was an opportunity for us to sort of open that door really wide and 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 say, your story does matter. And uh, even if we've never heard of, you know, where you work, or even if we don't know who you are. So this was sort of a way for us to demonstrate that it's not just happening to these really prominent reporters, it's happening to everyone. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Mark Hansen for speaking with me earlier and thank my colleagues, Alex and John, for being here to talk through the news of the week. You can check out the survey that we've been discussing as well as all the other great work we've got up at cjr.org. Go Eagles, and we'll see you next week.